to the Dark Academicals, the podcast where we delve into the mythos of dark academia one book at a time. I'm Sophie Waters. And I'm Sarah Purnell. And this week, we're looking at If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. If We Were Villains is the 2017 debut novel by M.L. Rio. It tells the story of Oliver Marks, who is released from prison for a crime he may or may not have committed. Over the course of the novel, Oliver recounts the tale to the now-retired detective of the case who put him in prison. Following his fourth year at the prestigious Delica Classical Conservatory, we are privy to a story of strained friendships, failed romances and a murdermost vow. A cautionary example of the pressures of being in the spotlight and the lengths one might go to to stay there. Oliver, James, Philippa, Meredith, Alexander, Richard. Who was the true villain? And why was the fall so hard to bear? If We Were Villains is the second most quoted book in the dark academia genre, after Donatart's The Secret History, which we discussed last time. We're going to dive in with what makes If We Were Villains a dark academia title. In the last few episodes, we've established all of the bullet points that we think kind of comprises the ultimate dark academia novel. Some apply to every text, some don't. And we're going to go through, see which ones do, and see how If We Were Villains fits into the genre of dark academia. So first on our checklist, we have a higher education setting. And I think this quite easily ticks the box for that. Yeah, effortlessly. It's... It's an elite, exclusive, classical conservatory, which is, I don't even really know what that is. It just sounds fancy and expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I want to say it's an extreme example of these kind of fine arts and theatrical schools, but it's probably more common than we think. Yeah. Cause I know we have like, London has a few like really prestigious drama and music schools doesn't it but I think because it's not it's not that accessible to most of us so I guess we wouldn't really know about it no I was actually thinking while I was reading that dark academia is more than just the academic setting it's like an academic cult yeah because we touched on that in the secret history as well that the Greek class is a cult and that idea is brought up by Oliver in reference to Delica as well. When he's telling his story to Colborne after he spent the 10 years in prison, he says, 10 years of trying to explain Delica in all its misguided magnificence to men in beige jumpsuits who never went to college or never even finished high school has made me realise what I as a student was willfully blind to, that Delica was less an academic institution than a cult. When we first walked through those doors, we did so without knowing that we were now a part of some strange fanatic religion where anything could be excused so long as it was offered at the altar of the muses. Ritual madness, ecstasy, human sacrifice. Were we bewitched? Brainwashed? Perhaps. I think that, like, that covers so many dark academia novels, doesn't it? In that, like, academic bubble. Yeah, I think what's interesting about um, If We Were Villains is it's not as subtle as some Mm. dark academia titles might present that kind of idea of the cult aspect. Whereas, you know, if we will be comparing and contrasting with The Secret History a little bit later, 
but for them it's it's an unspoken thing isn't it whereas yeah. I feel like at Delica it's very much you know by the time they get to the fourth year there's seven of them yeah <laughs> and they've been I guess they have been sacrificed through the years haven't they because there's like the rigorous testing and like guidelines that you have to meet in order to advance to the next year so you, yeah. you basically have to re-qualify for a place at your college every year which sounds horrific <laughs> i think what i thought was quite interesting was actually what do these students do like what do they do they don't seem the to same, study for anything, but, but they're the always time, busy. Yeah, it feels like they're always doing something. Whereas, again, like it's so hard to not compare to the secret history constantly. So in the secret history, they go to kind of one class maybe three times a week. And the rest of the time they spend drinking. <laughs> but at least these guys, they do a whole lot of drinking and partying. But you see, like they do so many rehearsals. They do so much partying honestly but there is a lot of time doing the actual work and yet from our perspective because that's not the focus of the story it feels very wishy-washy yeah so I mean the first scene that we see all of them together they're in the library aren't they and Mm. they're busy at something also from the outside looking in they're just reading yeah which mirrors the secret history, actually. That's the first time Richard meets the Greek class in the library. That's true. There are lots of unsubtle <laughs> comparisons <laughs> between yes. the two novels. But yes, it definitely ticks the boxes for a higher education setting. Yes, absolutely. And it does in the old Gothic architecture as well, in perhaps a quite an obvious way. I mean, they live in a castle. So there's no, there's nothing subtle. <laughs> I think at one point Oliver does say, "Well, it's not technically a castle; it's a big old building that's got a turret." But I mean, yeah, it's got, it's got, a, got giant a turret tower. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on my university campus, we had the castle. Again, it was just a big, tall, long, skinny building that looked, and it had a little turret, and it was called the castle. And everyone loved going to classes in the castle. She felt like a legit English literature student when you had a class in the castle. Uh, we didn't have a castle, but my um, accommodation block was called Coleridge. Uh, okay. That's, that's as close as it got for me. <laughs> Fair enough. I think as well, the architecture and the, the setting and the buildings, it's almost too fantastical to believe. Like it's almost on the fantasy side of Gothic but set in a contemporary setting, I think. They live in a castle. Um, I feel like it often echoes Shakespearean settings that we see in the plays. As they're putting on Macbeth and King Lear, often they're staged in a castle. They're surrounded by the forest, which then again, Midsummer Night's Dream, Macbeth, the forest is very important. The forest is so important in Shakespeare that it would actually almost be a crime if there wasn't a usable forest in if we were villains and they there's even that very english sounding i mean it's not a pub but it sounds like a pub i can't think what it's Um, called now boar's head yeah but is it spelt weirdly i feel like it's spelt weirdly like a boar yeah (laughs) i know what you mean but yes not the boar as in the animal no (laughs) boar as in a boring person (laughs) But they hold court there 
and it just again it, it reminded me of scenes from Shakespeare like with Falstaff and Henry the Henry V and stuff like that so I really liked how like the attendance at that court dwindled throughout the novel yes I thought that was quite clever actually that was a subtle symbol through the novel one of the few subtleties I think <laughs> but by the end it's obviously just Meredith and Richard and they're being you know they eventually get kicked out by the stairs and the judgment don't they that's what forces yeah. them back to the castle <laughs> and like with you mentioning Shakespeare you can't get away from Shakespeare in this book it's like one of the the tenets of dark academia is a preoccupation with classical studies literature philosophy and it is Shakespeare for whiff we were villains it it permeates the entire novel and too much I think I agree I think it's very clear that the author author loves Shakespeare but I think it runs the risk of alienating the reader too much. Yeah, definitely. Where in The Secret History, they'll speak in little phrases of Greek or Latin. They don't have huge paragraphs in Greek or Latin. So we're just like, or quoting Plato or something, and we're just looking at it like, I have no idea what you're on about. I think it adds too many layers to the interpretation for me. So when a character in, in the book is speaking through the lines of a character in a Shakespeare play, you then have to interpret what the Shakespeare character is thinking or feeling at that moment and then apply it to the current situation of the character in the book. And I think it's just a bit too much to kind of pull apart in that moment. Yeah, It's a huge barrier because understanding Shakespearean language isn't a given. It's not, it's, it's a learned skill. Agreed. You don't automatically understand what he means. Some of the more well-known phrases, sure, because they are part of language now. They're part of modern language and they are cultural touch points. But, I mean, I didn't even know Pericles was a Shakespeare play until I read this book. Like, that's one I didn't even know existed. So it, it it's very gatekeeping in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that we both tried while um, reading was keeping note of how many times Shakespeare was quoted. And I gave up by the end of Act One, which if you've read the book, which I'm hoping you have if you're here, because so many spoilers. So just a heads up now on that one. Um, In the first act, we get to them performing Macbeth. 14 plays are quoted 36 times and that's not including the several pages of them showing actual Macbeth being performed it must be half the text (laughs) I saw um I can't remember whether it was a Goodreads review but it was um that Shakespeare should be co-authored on the cover because (laughs) you know half the content is him (laughs) which I thought was quite funny I mean I am a Shakespeare fangirl like I love Shakespeare I love talking about Shakespeare I will be that annoying person that whenever something slightly Shakespeare is mentioned I'll be like aha I have an interesting (laughs) fact about that I am that person but this even this was too much for me and I think it's because it's not refined enough Like, if it's stuck to the plays that they were concerned with and maybe brought in a few of the wildly wider known 
like quotes or something, then I think it had have an easier time following it through. I think it'd have more of an impact as well. Yeah. Well, like, definitely because those those scenes when they're when James and Oliver are rehearsing for King Lear, that is so powerful. And then when you see them perform it on stage, mm-hmm. like that actually got me in my feels. Yeah. And Macbeth, like the performance of Macbeth is one of my favorite scenes in the book. It's so atmospheric. It's so visceral. And like you do feel like you're watching it yourself. And I think that was beautifully done. And I think that had the impact, all the impact we needed. We didn't need them showing how smart they were every three seconds. Yeah. With quoting reams of Shakespeare. <laughs> it just, it's not needed. I agree. Another one of the, like, the tenets of dark academia is like hero worship of a particular figure. And it's blatantly obvious that they all worship Shakespeare and Oliver even kind of discusses it a few times and it's like he kind of explains it as Shakespeare allows them to be more themselves or bring out their own personalities he says we're afraid of looking foolish if we reveal the full force of our emotions but in Shakespeare's world passion is irresistible not embarrassing they kind of use it as that way to express themselves Yeah, I really love that as a concept. I think that, again, could be really powerful. But because there are so many different characters that they speak through, it just gets confusing. Even if for each... Because they do a play each semester? Yeah. Yeah, each semester. Yeah, so it's King Lear, Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So I think even if the characters... I mean, they sort of do. They sort of evolve into those characters each uh, semester, but because they're not necessarily stuck to that character it gets a bit confusing because you know they could be Cassius one minute and then Romeo the next and yeah it doesn't quite gel for me takes away the impact of it doesn't it yeah and I think it also kind of inhibits their development as characters as well because you see them as all of these different characters instead of themselves yeah you can see how they are turning into this Shakespearean character, but you don't have the background of who they are and how they relate to those characters. And when you do, it's quite heavy-handed. Like in the class with um, their tutor, Gwendolyn, where she makes them stand up and like reveal their biggest strengths and weaknesses in this really humiliating, horrible way that, I mean... I would never go back to that class. (laughs) She is absolutely ruthless with them. And it kind of, it gives you the information you need, but not in a, an elevated way. It's not subtle. Yeah, it's really not subtle (laughs) at all. (laughs) They all take on Shakespeare as part of their personalities and part of them in a very unhealthy way but also in a way that really distances everyone because very few people have that level of connection with something like that. There's even, like, I really liked this quote because it made me laugh because it's ridiculous. Oliver said, It was just us, the seven of us, and the trees, and the sky, and the lake, and the moon, and of course Shakespeare. He lived with us like an eighth housemate, an older, wiser friend, perpetually out of sight, but never out of mind, as if he had just left the room. I get 
what she's going for is also diminishing them as a group, I think, in a way. Because I think he's almost saying that their friendship hangs on Shakespeare. Like, if they de- if they didn't have Shakespeare, they wouldn't have anything that connects them. They wouldn't have anything that brought them together. And just to reference secret history again, because why not? Whereas they're all connected by the Greek class, aside from Richard, they have genuine connections to each other. They have histories. They have... Um, interactions outside of that class and that academic setting because those relationships and those characters are so much more developed than they are in if we were villains and i feel like the shakespeare just took away instead of adding to it was heavy-handed really yeah i think see what else was heavy-handed what's that the murder (laughs) oh the murder yeah it's So so on page isn't it it is i mean i wrote (laughs) when i was writing down my notes um i put we have a murder um (laughs) i also put obviously offing someone should never be the answer but i do find the motivation lacking a bit i think when we find out what actually happened you can almost argue it's self-defense and you can kind of understand how it happened but i just don't quite understand the motivation for it to have got to that point I guess it was it was a crime of passion, wasn't it? I mean, James... Spoiler. Um, <laughs> they were all drunk, weren't they? And it was, yeah. it was initially an act of self-defence. But what I mean is, um, I don't fully understand how Richard became such a villain to them. Oh, I like, see. Okay, do you know what yeah. I mean? I'm not yeah. quite sure how it escalated to that level. And right. I don't know. I've, I've, I felt like that that aspect was underdeveloped like it was him as an antagonist yeah i get that because it was it was quite sharp wasn't it because he was annoying he was frustrating he was bullshy and then suddenly he was bruising james yeah there wasn't there wasn't a gradual ride up i know i think the technical motivation was that he was jealous that he didn't get his part and he was worried about losing it and then messing it up for him but yeah i mean he has a wounded ego He's a bully. Yeah. <laughs> he poses a he poses a physical threat to them. Mm. But again, if we're gonna if we're going to compare it, because can't help it, can't help it. <laughs> when you compare it to Bunny's demise, there's not the same like dark desperation. I don't think Bunny mm. was threatening something much more dangerous to them. Like he was holding their reputations hostage. Mm. Whereas I feel like Richard, it could have been solved in another way more easily. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think also like the jump to, from James acting in self-defense to them all standing there and going, eh, let's just let him die. Yeah. That's quite a jump. <clears throat> and from someone who didn't have the same level of motivation, because it's Alexander that first says, why? Why are we doing this? Why, why do we need to save him? Yeah, that's true. I think, yet again, the elders of the story have failed the young adults. Oh, um, always, yeah. Always. They're... I mean, yeah, they, they've set them up to fail, to be fair, by casting Richard in the lead roles over and over again. All they've done is kind of built up this kind of idea that he is, like, the leading man and anything else is unacceptable. Yeah, well, it's um, like that that shaping of these 
these people who they think they are or think they should be and forcing them to live up to it just like Julian does in The Secret History and then it all collapses under that pressure. I feel like we don't obviously see the murder but we see the aftermath. It's very gruesome, it's very visceral and I think that takes out some of the um, the horror. Yeah. Because... I don't know, we know what happened, we see it in front of us and you see them deciding not to do anything about it and I think it's more insidious for the Secret History Gang to be planning this and planning this and then it jumps and it's done and it's haunting them. I think that's, it's a much more powerful way to show it. Even though I think Oliver mentions... The presence of Richard's ghost, a bit like, mm. like, a, like in a Shakespeare play, when yeah. you often get these ghost characters, but none of them, apart from Wren, seem to be that bothered, no, or that haunted by it. Maybe Alexander, because he, he just drinks he, himself into a stupor, doesn't he, and then drugs yeah. himself into a stupor. And James, I think, obviously is more affected because, spoiler alert, he did it. But, mm. <laughs> um, but for the others who all had their hand in not saving him. Yeah. Don't seem that bothered. I mean, Meredith, he was her boyfriend. Yeah. And she's just completely unfazed by it and immediately goes to sleep with Oliver. I think that's another thing that's really on stage a lot more is the violence, the sex, and the the partying. Yeah. There's less of the suggestion and subtlety and it's very much... This is what they were doing, as if you're trying to say, look at this, so you miss this, and then I can reveal it later. It's like almost like deliberate misdirection in some mm. ways, which is very Shakespearean, actually. True. But I don't think it worked in the same way it could have done. Because another kind of tenet of dark academia is the dark, moody, haunting vibe. And I think the the lack of subtlety took away from that a little bit it was it was definitely still there but i don't think it was as effective no i think superficially it's there because i wrote yep castle forest lake tea dust libraries but (laughs) it's all like it's like all the ingredients are there but somebody forgot to put the oven on there's something slightly missing if you wanted a true dark moody haunting dark academia vibe i think yeah and i think that runs through to the to like the weather as well and the pathetic fallacy there's lots of snow there's lots of rain there's lots of cold and damp but it doesn't really have any effect on the characters it doesn't have a presence it's just there in the background it's it's the stage set for them yeah but without it having an impact because i mean when you go to the theater the background and the stage is such an integral part of the show you're you're meant to notice it but not notice it and it it plays a role and it doesn't fulfill that quota of jobs for me we all know sarah loves the weather I love the weather and I had nothing, I had literally nothing of note to say about the weather yeah, in this book, just, which may be a bit sad. It's just not there or not there enough, which is a shame. I think another thing Money. is that, yeah, that is another thing that is a little bit underdeveloped, isn't it? Mm. Because it's there in little snippets, 
Meredith clearly has a lot of cash and she has this fancy apartment in Manhattan. She funds all the parties and Ren must have money because she flies over from London to go to school. Although this isn't related to money, but it just popped into my mind because I noticed it when reading. When she comes back to school after um, the f- Richard's funeral, they talk about how it took her 24 hours to get from London to Chicago. Like, even in 1997. No. No. Even if it's not a direct flight and you have to go via New York. No. No. (laughs) That's ridiculous. But anyway, that's beside the point. (laughs) But I think one of the few times that we know that money is an issue is towards the end when Oliver gets cut off by his parents for his last semester but at the same time he must come from that money because they're forking out 20 grand yeah for him to go to school yeah they have enough money but not enough money for all of their children to do that same thing yeah i think that it's safe to say they're comfortable oh definitely and it's not like taboo to not have much money either whereas in the secret history you know we see richard desperately trying to hide the fact that he has no money mm. whereas uh oliver it doesn't seem to be a, a point of worry other than i might not be able to go back to school but they fix it and how do they fix yeah. it he cleans the house for a little bit and they let him come back to school mm. but he's not ashamed of it he just does it yeah there's no kind of oh what if they all see me he waits till everyone's gone but that could just be a practical thing yeah there's but it's not it's also not confronted either mm. he doesn't on page he doesn't tell his friends what happened and this would be a big thing it's a weird one that one it doesn't quite fit under this novel but it is it does linger <laughs> under the surface i think there's only one left we've got underdeveloped social skills or the protagonist is pr- portrayed as an outsider he is oliver is an outsider because but, he has no talent. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying... I'm not saying he has no talent. He, <laughs> he says, says he has no talent. <laughs> yeah. I actually bookmarked two quotes for this because I think they just said everything that I wanted to say. It's like, only half as talented as any of the rest of them. I seem doomed to always play supporting roles in someone else's story. Far too many times I had asked myself whether art was imitating life or if it was the other way around. And I think, like, like most protagonists in a dark academia novel they take their agency through telling the story that's how they then take control of that don't they yeah and oliver does that as well and because he takes the fall for james he puts himself at the center of that story he wipes james from (laughs) from his crime essentially he also calls himself average in every imaginable way but if you've if you've got into such an elite school, then that can't be true. Like, maybe you're average among the elite, but you're still <laughs> you're still levels above other people. And I know you mentioned this, didn't you, about um like the hierarchy in the school of the different disciplines. Yeah, because no one else seems to really do anything. <laughs> Or get anything. <laughs> They're all just waiting around for the theatre kids to put on a play so that they can have their moment too. Yeah. 
and Although, come to the party. <laughs> they do. There are a few run-ins with the Greek kids, aren't there? Like who are yeah. studying Greek, and it's just <laughs> they're portrayed in a very um, introverted and awkward way, aren't they? I feel a bit sorry for them. <laughs> I just find it really funny that Oliver snarked about the Greek kids about conversing in Greek. Dude, you talk in Shakespeare. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you have entire conversations in Shakespeare. <laughs> Leave them alone. <laughs> yeah, oh. that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like the Greek kids, they are outsiders in the fact that the school isn't a school. It's schools of different schools. Yeah. That's a really convoluted way to say that. But they act in their disciplines, don't they? They don't really mix other than the parties. Hmm. I would, honestly, I if I was there and I was like some great clarinet player, wouldn't you just want... You would want to just murder them all, wouldn't you? You'd see yeah. them coming and be like, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've had enough of this. Yeah. <laughs> and seeing their faces plastered all over the school in the posters. <laughs> must be so annoying. So I think that if we were villains definitely ticks a lot of our boxes in the checklist not all of them but most of them i can definitely see why it is highly regarded as like a dark academia novel (laughs) but i think there are better examples yes i agree it's a very heavy-handed example of dark academia Mm. i think it's it's almost like ml rio has done what we've done and pulled out a list and gone okay here's the things that i have to hit yeah. And they haven't been developed in the way that they should have done. I think it would have been a stronger novel to take a couple of those elements and really hone in on them than throw everything at the board and see what happens. I think it's definitely more accessible. Yes. Than oh, absolutely. Secret history. I mean, it's like if, 300 pages shorter for yeah. a start. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you know, if you tried to read Secret History and you went, ooh, not for me, then I think probably you'd get same vibes from Mm. reading if we were villains and it's easier to read oh definitely yeah it's a much quicker read it's it's very compelling it's very easy to get lost in their world but i think a lot of the secret history is suggestive it's implied you have to you have to do the academic work too alongside them to notice everything that's going on underneath like you've read it twice i've read it three times I know that we could both read it again and have an entirely new conversation about that book because there's so much to it. Yeah. But I've read If We Were Villains twice now and I don't think I would get any more out of it at this point. You can read it and you can move on. Yeah. Whereas The Secret History, you're in it for for the rest of your life. (laughs) That's it now. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Yeah. I know we've done a lot of comparing to the secret history, but there were a few things that I know we wanted to talk about specifically in comparison to the secret history. And one of the big ones for me is the connection to the Bacchanal in the secret history and Mm. putting on Macbeth at Halloween. And they even even say it was a party of Bacchanalian proportions. And... Halloween seemed to bring out a sort of sybaritic hysteria in the Delica students. I did have to Google that. It means (laughs) self-indulgent, luxurious and pleasurable. 
never heard that word before in my life. But it's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) And it's this kind of like cult of excess. Oliver describes it to Colborn. The drinking, the partying, the drugs, the sex, the revenge, the fights. And I think that's a big throwback to the Bacchanal Hmm. that kind of kicks everything off in the secret history. Yeah. I think uh, there are some very obvious comparisons that you can make. So Richard is... I always get confused as well because Richard is obviously the the main character's Mm -hmm. name in the secret history, but in If We Were Villains, he's the antagonist um or is he but yeah he's Mm. an antagonist yeah um and he is obviously the henry character Mm. and i think almost all of them kind of have a comparable don't they character by character it's interesting that in that that you said he was the henry because he's also the bunny he is and they are two polar characters in the secret history Mm. I think it's just in the way he's described and the way he carries himself. He's oh, very yeah, much definitely. A, yeah. <clears throat> a Henry. I think as well, like, the way it's told, it's it's more of a, a mystery. It's still told in retrospect. It's the, the protagonist expunging the guilt of what they've done, of sharing this story, that he's the only person that's in a fit state to do so by the end of this ordeal. But it's it's the it's the opposite to the secret history in the way that we don't know what happens until he tells us, you know, yeah. probably what three quarters of the way through the book, and we find out along with um, Oliver in the in the past timeline in nineteen ninety seven. What I think is interesting though is with the secret history, even though I knew what was going to happen, I was still surprised along the way. Yes, but with if we were villains, even though I didn't know. I wasn't surprised. Like, I already knew. Like, it was obvious. It Mm. was obvious what was going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Which is why when there was, like, a supposed to be a big reveal moment, rather than me going, oh, I was like, eh. Yeah, definitely. I think once you've... Once you get to the point where James is crying in the bathroom, and then the next scene jumps to... Well, nearly the next scene jumps to um, them finding Richard. It's like, oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much mystery left. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. And it's even hinted at, like, super early on. Page eight. Alexander pushed his unruly black curls back from his face and said, well, obviously Richard will be Caesar because we all secretly want to kill him, James said. Yeah. I mean, James is the murderer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, talking about Caesar again, page 33. What is more important, that Caesar is assassinated or that he is assassinated by his intimate friends? There we go. Not subtle. No. But I do, I prefer those kind of comparisons to the text, like to the plays in that way. Like I wish that was like carried out the whole way through. Because that allows you to put the pieces together yourself and go, oh, 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 oh. And the more (laughs) you know of the plays, the more it gives you. Yeah. That's the connection. But the constant quoting is is not it for me. <laughs> the first time I read it, I nearly put it down because of all of the Shakespeare quotes. But I'm glad I didn't, obviously. <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, I think because of how we're kind of framing this, that we are holding it up to a framework of what is dark academia, it probably sounds quite critical of it. And it's mm. meant to be. Yeah, yeah. But I still really enjoyed it. 
and I oh, would yeah. recommend other people to yeah. read it in a heartbeat. Like it's it's still a good book. It's such a fun book. Yeah. It's really easy to read. It's really easy to get involved in. It's it's a, it's a really fun read and I think and like you said it's accessible as well. But that doesn't mean that there aren't obviously valid criticisms and comparisons. Mhm. I mean I wrote down um I saw that there was a little quote uh, when I was Googling about it, and it said the New the New York Times calls it at once good and bad. Yeah, I, I, I agree think that's with the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there are definitely some uh, isolated elements that uh, made me a little bit uncomfortable that I wasn't too happy about. Yes, definitely. And interestingly, similar touch points to our major criticisms of The Secret History. which is going to make it interesting as we go forward, are these recurrent themes in dark academia? Are they part of the genre? So that's going to be something that I know I'm going to be paying attention to as we go. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a big one, I think, in uh, If We Were Villains is the queer representation. Yeah, definitely. And I've framed it as queer representation because I don't think anyone anywhere actually explains or tells someone what their sexuality is or how they identify no no labels are put on it are there no Uh, i mean the biggest sticking point for me is the relationship between james and oliver i feel like that could have been more realized definitely and it's there comes a point where i feel like she suddenly goes okay i've got to make this plausible i've got to work this in whereas Mm. it wasn't kind of drip fed yeah, the novel, like the fiends, you know that they're really close friends, but you don't begin to wonder if there's anything more until it's very obvious that there is something more. Yeah, I think for me, it's rather in the secret history, it's the 80s. Mm-hmm. And in If We Were Villains, it's the 90s. Yeah, And even though queer representation and how like the queer community went about their lives in the 90s it's still the 90s and they're at an arts college yeah it just it feels like they're it was like they were trying to hide it a lot and I don't quite understand why when you had a character like Alexander who was very out and proud I think he's the only openly queer character in the novel isn't he yes but also the way he's described is that his sexuality is a deviance almost yes which I hate, it's awful, because he's the only one that's fully kind of embracing who he is. Mm. He's also, uh, on the flip side though, almost perpetuating that harmful stereotype yeah. of like a predatory homosexual person. Yeah, definitely. The way he, you know, he's described as stalking around parties, looking for like, impressionable first years that he can convince mm. to be gay. Yeah, I actually wrote down the quote and it was... Um, conversation between meredith and oliver so oliver says to meredith alexander rolled you a spliff if you want it meredith replies god bless the filthy head nest where is he now and oliver tells her on the dance floor prowling for first years who don't know they're gay yet Mm. it's just awful and this novel was written in 2017 just i'm not that's not to say that there are not people that do that but i don't think that it was necessary it wasn't needed for his character's development or his motivations Mm -hmm. like we didn't need that aspect and i think he could have been sexually promiscuous he could have been sexually popular as a character without that 
seedier element. It's, it's a damaging stereotype to put. Yes. I mean, it's a damaging stereotype, but even worse to put it on the only openly queer character in the novel. I think that doubles down on how harmful that is. Yeah. I think as well, there's just a tendency to be a bit shocked and scandalised mm. by anything that's not heteronormative. And again, they, they're studying Shakespeare, yep. for one. I, I didn't, I forgot to put the quote, but when they're discussing the tent scene for Julius Caesar and they oh, all seem yeah. a little bit, a little bit like, <gasps> because mm. there's like a very uh, homosexual reading of it. And I'm like, I don't know if you've ever read that scene, but no. like, it, it's very gay. Mm. It could be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. it could be read that way. It's very easy to read it that way mm-hmm. and to act it that way. And I've seen it acted that way. Like, it's not a new thing. And it's not like Shakespeare's a new thing that's being interpreted for the first time in 1997. No, exactly. It's, it's a very well-established reading of that scene, I'm assuming. It did a disservice to queer characters. And it also did like, a disservice to women as well. Yeah. With Pip. Definitely. Because Pip is constantly being passed over, sidelined. She is the the character that has to give up a female role and take on a male role because she's not traditionally feminine or traditionally and expectedly. That's not a word. (laughs) She's not traditionally beautiful or expected to be beautiful. And another comment that was in very poor taste was about Pip being constantly in male roles and it goes yeah Meredith said you could always get a sex change become a boy on a permanent basis and just start calling yourself Philip and that's used as a joke and it's horrible and again I bring up this was published in 2017 that's not okay no it wasn't okay before that but it's especially not okay in such a recent novel i think that even characters like meredith though she's portrayed as this kind of i think she's even called the temptress at, at mm. one point when alexander is um busy typecasting them all he's yep. tr- he's <laughs> saying oh i know who i know which parts everyone's going to play and meredith is going to play the part of the temptress like she's this idolized version of a woman yeah and yeah <laughs> i don't and know what else to say. <laughs> and in that class with gwendolyn that's her strength, is her body. Mm. Her curvy body and the, the fact that she knows how to use it to seduce men is her biggest strength out of everything in her personality and her biggest talent as an actor. Yeah. I don't actually know how ML Rio identifies. I think they are she, her. Those at the back. Yep, she, her. Interesting. That makes it even worse. There's a lot of internalised misogyny. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there is in theatre, especially Shakespearean theatre. True, but I also think that there is a lot of space for women to take on roles across the board in Shakespeare. I think it depends on who is in charge of casting. Yes. It's, It's almost like there's room for that to be turned on its head. And that mm. wasn't taken advantage of as much as it should have been. Although there is, is it in Romeo and Juliet, the Christmas mask ball? Who comes out? Is it Meredith that comes out? Meredith. Yeah, who does as she... As a 
male oh. character. Um, is it Tybalt? I can look. I just remember the line about her shapely legs in oh, tights. <laughs> As if she's never worn tights before. Aeschylus. I'm not familiar with that character, really. No. It's a prince. And I think I think there are I think there are attempts to kind of highlight that. I think that it is very it it, it does represent like what a woman's life on stage can be like. Mm-hmm. Like sex sells and it will continue to sell. Yeah. But I don't think it was fully again it's another aspect that wasn't fully explored. Yeah. So it just kind of feels a little bit one note. She never um, really rebelled against it strongly enough, did she? No. For, for it to become something that was turned into a discussion yeah we both know by now i do quite enjoy a little bit of a deep dive (laughs) so there's the bit where they mention and i should have saved it but i didn't (laughs) where they mention uh putting on um troilus and cressida yeah and swapping not even swapping where the ancient greeks will be played by women and the trojans would be played by men Mm mm-hmm and on paper, I think that's an interesting idea. But uh, it's not a particularly groundbreaking arrangement because if you think about the legend of Troy, like these ancient Greek stories were written by men, for men, with wars that were fought by men. So if, if the ancient Greeks were all women, <laughs> the war probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's actually made me think of, I can't remember the name of the play. And it's it's where the women's version of waging war is to withhold sex from their husbands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's on the tip of my tongue. Lysistrata. So that's like, in ancient Greece, that was the female war. They, that's, yeah. that's the limit of their power, wasn't it? Yeah. Because the, often as well, when well, Greeks and Trojans, like when they went to war and one one over the other, the women would be subject to rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. They were so, the conquered. Yes. But at least Shakespeare, uh, in his plays himself, does provide some interesting female characters that the characters in If We Villains could play, like yes. Rosalind. Mm-hmm. Rosalind is one of my favourite characters from As You Like It. Um, Lady Macbeth from Macbeth. Love like, Lady what Macbeth. a role. <laughs> And then you've got some characters that do bear the brunt of this kind of male privilege and toxic masculinity, like Lavinia from my favourite play, Titus Andronicus. Like, she has a terrible time, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because you are seeing... I think think they could be performed in a way that would be very impactful. Yeah. Um, You know, Desdemona from Othello, all of King Lear's daughters. Like... (laughs) And um, in Twelfth Night, um, Olivia. Yeah. Yeah, which spawned the legendary movie, She's the Man. (laughs) (laughs) Or Taming in the Shrew, which formed the other legendary movie, Ten Things I Hate About You. (laughs) We love a a naughty Shakespeare adaptation (laughs) for teens. (laughs) Before we move on to, like, close character analysis, Mm -hmm. there is one character that I'd like to bring up. And that is who I have affectionately termed Colin the Meme. Because by the time I got three quarters of the way in, I was like, this is a joke now, isn't it? Colin is a joke. Colin Colin has no no reason to be there other than he is that extra body that can do things so that the main characters can stay on stage. Yeah. 
It'll be like, we need someone to go to the doctors. I'm like, Colin will do it. <laughs> yeah. It's just always there. The amount of times you messaged me going, Colin, why is Colin here? <laughs> like, who is Colin? Yeah, poor Colin. I found it really interesting that he ended up with Alexander, though. Yeah. It was almost a bit forced to get him into the places that he needed to be. Yeah. To... S- to do the things he needed to do to support the story. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the vaguest sentence I've ever said. <laughs> Colin is very much a tool. He is. <laughs> Bless Colin. In every sense of the word. Oh, Colin. <laughs> Justice for Colin. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, I also feel like the publisher missed a trick with marketing. Like, I wanted bookmarks that had, like, the Julius Caesar poster on it or something, you know? Oh, yeah. I think that would have been really cool because in the book they take cast photos for Mm. each production and they do it in a very stylized way, don't they? So I thought they would be really cool as marketing materials. How good would they have been as the end papers in the 10th and... Not 10th, in the 5th and... No, that doesn't work. What was the fancy edition that came out last year? Why did we get a fancy edition? It's not that old. I don't know. Anyway. That's this year. Well, there's a fancy edition and it's fancy and I agree it should have had (laughs) those as the end papers. (laughs) That would have been so good. Or like the inside of the dust jacket. Yeah. Like American book box style. Mm. I agree. (sighs) Titan. Titan, Titan. Titan, Titan, Titan. But yes, (laughs) character analysis. Mr. Oliver Marks, our main character. Mm-hmm. He's not a particularly nice guy. Nope. I didn't really like his attitude towards his sisters. Oh, no, that was awful. Especially the one that's obviously got some issues. Eating disorder. Uh, and uh, yeah. yeah. Caroline. He's not very nice to her. Um, and he's only nice to his other sister, which I can't remember the name of. Uh, Leah. Leah. Yeah. Yeah, because she's clever. Mm-hmm. And yet he still abandons her. Yeah, that's true. She's crying, asking for help in this really toxic household. And he's like, sorry, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> like, A plus big brothering there. Well done. And the thing is, like, everyone constantly throughout the novel calls him good. And nice. Everyone's always using those words for him. But he literally, he covered up a murder, let a man die. And his treatment of women is just not it. I know in Secret History, we had a bit of a revelatory moment with Richard when his true kind of thought process towards Camilla came out. And I had one of them with Oliver as well when um, they've just done a rehearsal and they're getting changed afterwards. And um, Oliver says, thinking about Meredith, my heart stuttered at her touch and I wondered suddenly if she was wearing anything under the robe. Part of me wanted to rip it off and find out and another part wanted to crack her head against the wall and knock some sense into her. So awful <coughs> Is it violent. These men? <laughs> James deserves better. He does. He does. Even though he's literally... We're defending the murderer right now. <laughs> True. I guess he did ultimately pay pay the price, didn't he? He did. James's ending frustrated me. Yeah. Which one? The letter. Oh, the letter. It's so impersonal. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, someone you love 
dies and the letter they leave you is a passage from a bleeding Shakespeare play. But is he dead? Yeah, and that's the other thing that annoyed me. That casting doubt, because they never find yeah. his body. And I that's think the, last the ending, thing said. again, another comparison to the secret history, but by the time you got to the end of the secret history, you know that every single character is paying for what they've done mm-hmm. in one way or another, yeah. or has paid one way or another. But in if we were villains, apart from James, who actually could be sat in a deck chair somewhere sipping margaritas, yeah. um, they're all fine. Meredith really? is an actor on a TV series with a massive house, and she's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, there's a. I don't know how I. I, I don't know how I feel about her and. Uh, Oliver's relationship either I feel like if she didn't have the money and like the accessibility and the privilege that she does would he even be there I don't think so because his first instinct was to go to James yeah it's true and I think that's kind of reflected throughout the throughout the novel when Meredith even notices that like James would be his first choice but that's not always an option therefore he'll settle for Meredith even though Meredith is also on a pedestal for him. It is a weird tangle of, of relationships there. Apart from James and Pip, they're just all not very nice people. No. I mean, Ren's all right. She's a little bit neither here nor there, though, really. Yeah. Like I said to you, she just reminds me of Alice from Twilight, and now I can't <laughs> unsee it in my head. I don't know. I think even I think Alice has more agency, to be honest. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> I like Alice. <laughs> She's a babe. <laughs> yeah, I think generally, like, across the board, these characters could have, could have done with a lot of fleshing out. Yeah, I mean, I don't say it often, but I feel like this book definitely could have been longer. Or just I take out mad. the Shakespeare and put actual words in it. That that's it. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the put one. Original context, con- put original content in instead. Ta-da! I agree. But that's not to say that this book isn't immensely enjoyable and worth reading. True. Because it's a really fun novel. I agree. My opinion from reading it the first time to the reading it the second time are different. I'm not going to lie about that. It was a solid 4.5 the first time I read it and I gave it a 3 on my reread. Yeah, I, I gave it a 3, but I have a lot of feelings about it mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's because it specifically because it deals with Shakespeare and again Shakespeare fangirl right here <laughs> I just wanted more from it I think yeah I think reading it against the secret history was a blessing and a curse for this novel yeah I think I definitely think it's it's you know it's on the front cover that it, it's compar- comparable to the secret history which does it no does it no <laughs> no. no and it and it, it does the book itself a great amount of favours mm. but then when you read it and if you're a secret history fan you're gonna struggle because i picked it up the first time because it was sold as like the secret history but it's still an immensely enjoyable novel and i'd easily easily recommend it if you're curious if you like academic settings if you like dark academia and even if you did like the secret history because it is fun seeing those touch points between the novel yeah, definitely. And I think we can definitely agree that it yes, it is a dark academia novel. Yes, it absolutely is. It yeah, 
it's entwined with all of the iconic pointers of what forms dark academia definitely so please join us for our next episode where we'll be exploring madam by phoebe Wynne. for 150 years high above rocky scottish cliffs cowdenbury hall has sat untouched a beacon of excellence in an old ancestral castle a boarding school for girls it promises that the young women lucky enough to be admitted will emerge resilient and ready to serve society into its illustrious midst steps rose christie a 26-year-old classics teacher, Caldenbray's new head of the department and the first hire for the school in over a decade. At first, Rose is overwhelmed to be invited into this institution, whose prestige is unrivalled. But she quickly discovers that behind the school's elitist veneer lies an impenetrable, starkly traditional culture that she struggles to reconcile with her modernist beliefs, not to mention her commitment to educating girls for the future. It also doesn't take long for Rose to suspect that there's more to the secret circumstances surrounding the abrupt departure of her predecessor, a woman whose ghost lingers everywhere than anyone is willing to let on. In her search for this mysterious former teacher, Rose instead uncovers the darkness that beats at the heart of Caldenbray, forcing her to confront the true extent of the school's nefarious purpose and her own role in perpetuating it. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us next time. Bye. Bye.